IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to emails sent by you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's still sorry he got married instead of reviewing illusory walls. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, we're referring to one of my favorite pieces of indie cast lore, where uh, this uh, one Twitter user, like I took, I, I actually followed through on not being on Twitter for a week when I got uh, married and went on my honeymoon in 2021, and like the first thing I saw when I got back is. There was like some sort of factual error in the pitchfork review of the world is illusory walls, and someone was like, "That's a, you know, that's what happens when Ian Cohen decides to get married instead of reviewing illusory walls." And you know what? Come twenty thirty one, maybe I'll like do a ten year anniversary piece instead of going on a honeymoon or something, or maybe I'll just delay the honeymoon. Like I believe me for the illusory walls truthers, which uh, maybe it's the third best world is album. I'm here for you. I'm just biding my time. So, and I bring this up because it's your uh, two-year wedding anniversary. This it very year, much right? is. Not not today. I mean, that, well, it was yesterday and we're going to Santa Barbara this weekend. But I, I, I just want to be very, very clear that I am not recording uh, a, a podcast uh, during my uh, anniversary vacation. I'm just trying to remember if I've ever recorded an episode on a wedding anniversary. I'm sure <laughs> I have. I'm sure I have. Uh, and you're going to go see Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie with the Postal Service. Well, not together. Those are two separate shows yes. for your anniversary weekend. So you're really doing the middle-aged indie <laughs> rock fan anniversary weekend. I love it. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. Like, Also, we're seeing M83 tonight. Um but this weekend we're doing um, we're going to Santa Barbara, and it just so happened that like Wilco is playing on Friday night with My Brightest Diamond opening. Like that's a real remember some guys type name. And yeah, I didn't even, know My Brightest Diamond was still a thing, uh, a going concern. This is very cool because that's like very 2006 rock. Oh yeah, yeah. Like not to be confused with Lavender Diamond. Um, but even better is for Death Cab Postal Service. Pedro the Lion is opening, which... Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, look, if you've heard me talk about, you know, my wife and my relationship with her in the past, like, you know, Pedro the Lion's like a major, major thing for us. And what I'm hoping is, so it's, you know, Death Cab playing Transatlanticism, Postal Service doing um, Give Up. I really hope that, like, Pedro the Lion does, like, control in its entirety. So it's, like, the show itself is kind of like Inception, where it start, it goes backwards and... You know, you begin with, like, the album about, like, divorce and, like, you know, disillusioned kids and, like, a priest uh, saying life is meaningless and then you end with such great heights. I think that would be really awesome conceptually. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you think like, the uh, aging indie rock band community got together and they thought, let's play some shows in Santa Barbara. It's around Ian Cohen's <laughs> wedding anniversary. I think it'd be really sweet of us that we, if we could do this for Ian, mm-hmm. play some shows. I don't like. What are you gonna do in Santa Barbara during the day? Is there like uh, uh, that's not wine country? This is how poorly I know California. <laughs> There's no wine 
places in Santa Barbara, right? Is that more like uh, it's Sonoma County, beach? like Solvang? It's just like a really nice part of uh, California. Like my friend, like one of my friends, uh, like a guy I've you know I've gone up to Santa Barbara Bowl and I've seen like the 1975 and like the National with Phoebe Bridgers opening. Like that's how long ago it was with this dude. He's like a doctor and he's like, yeah, I'm still like kind of like middle class in this city. Uh, it's just. A part of California where, like, it's just really, really affluent. And uh, the drug scene there is almost entirely prescription pills. Oh, there you go. That's the classy. <laughs> that's that's we you know. Yeah, you, just completely zonked out on, like, you know, on Xanax and whatnot. Not like Oxy, but it's just like, yeah, like the wine and pills crowd. So it's going to be a chill audience up <laughs> yeah. there in Santa Barbara. It's not even going to be a seated Audience, people are going to be like laying down on cots. Yeah. Uh, enjoying these shows. Um, we're actually recording this episode a day earlier than we normally do. We normally record on Thursday. We're, we're recording on Wednesday this week because after we get done recording, I'm doing my own little concert excursion. I'm going by myself. Well, I'm going to meet some people where I'm going. I'm going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for two days. I'm going to see two Bob Dylan shows back to back. Very excited. Have not seen Bob Dylan since uh, the pandemic, the current tour that he's on. I've heard many excited to be finally going in person. I'm finally, I'm finally going to Milwaukee. I haven't been to Milwaukee much at all uh, in the past several years. I used to live there. Milwaukee has changed dramatically since I was there. I, I basically left. I've been there more recently than you. <laughs> well, I was there this summer for oh, a okay. few days, but I was, I was more in West Dallas than I was in. Milwaukee proper for people who know the Milwaukee area. West Dallas, of course, is west of Milwaukee. It's a suburb. Uh, I've got family that lives in that area. So that whole downtown area has been transformed really since I left. I, I left like right before the, like the Giannis era oh, of okay. Milwaukee. <laughs> and, and like Giannis really has spearheaded like a transformation of downtown Milwaukee. You know, they have that new arena, mm-hmm. which isn't new anymore, but uh, I don't think that was there when I, I, I moved in 2014. So excited to hang out in Milwaukee, excited to see Bob Dylan. Uh, he's doing this thing where he's playing city specific covers mm-hmm. uh, in each town that he's like, when he was in Kansas city, he played the song Kansas city. Oh, <laughs> he was in Chicago. He played Born in Chicago. So there's all the speculation about what is he going to play in Milwaukee. There's a old country song. Uh, many people have done it. Jerry Lee Lewis uh, maybe did the most famous version called uh, "What Made Milwaukee Famous Has Made a Loser Out of Me." That's a song that people have speculated Bob might be playing. There's a Dolly Parton Porter Wagoner song called "Milwaukee Here We Come." Could be that. I'm seeing a lot of jokes about Bob maybe playing a Violent Femme song. All right. Uh, I would love it if he played a Citizen <laughs> King song. Like, let's, Fuck let, yeah. let's, let's show some serious Milwaukee knowledge. Drop Better Days by Citizen <laughs> King. Uh, maybe a Guff song. Ooh. Anyone out there know the Guffs? This is remembering some Wisconsin guys. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's like co- like comparatively like the Bodines or like the Rolling Stones compared to them. Yeah, the Guffs would be like the Wilco to the Bodines Rolling Stones. Um <laughs> Yeah, if if you lived in Wisconsin in the late '90s, early 2000s, and you didn't see the Guffs at Summerfest at least once, <laughs> I don't know what what you were doing back then. Um, so yeah, we're both seeing some shows here. 
It's yeah. going to be a good time. Yeah, I'm stoked about this Bob Dylan tour because, like, I look at the tour itinerary and he's playing places like Huntington, West Virginia, and Roanoke. Like, right. I re, oh, I mean, I really wonder like how he's going to honor like Roanoke, Virginia, uh, in his covers. There's not a Seven Mary Three. They are from uh, the Tidewater region, not Roanoke. So he's shit out of luck. He probably would fudge it and play a Virginia song. So okay. maybe he'll play Sweet Virginia by the Stones or, you know, something. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Virginia songs. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm excited. By the time this, that, that this episode posts, I will have seen both of those shows already. So we'll know what, he, what he's played. But we can use this episode as a document of my <laughs> pre-Bob Dylan Milwaukee trip uh, and, and listen to it after I've, I've already done it. Uh, can we do a quick fantasy draft uh, update here? Uh, yes, because... I'm not. I'm not feeling super, super uh, po- optimistic about where I'm at. But let's let's just do it. Well, okay. So you, uh, you know, we, you know, Sufjan was your number one pick. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's at 87. I'm which, which feels like an underperformance. This is a little like, bit. I mean, we all yeah. know, like it's it's. Yeah, it, there's nothing but love surrounding it, and you know it's it, it's a great record. But it just remind like now, mind you, I picked this album mostly as like a defensive move because I feel if I didn't, you would. But it's like people talk about like guys like Matt Stafford or like Jared Goff, like these guys who are like winners, but it doesn't necessarily reflect in fantasy points. And I'm feeling like that's. That's what I'm working with right now, where it's like this album's gonna do like gangbusters in the year end lists, uh, but right now it just feels a little bit underperformy. A little bit. I mean, not dramatically. No. You would have wanted Sufjan to hit a ninety. Yes, I, I really, really felt like that was gonna be the case, and he's almost there. But uh... yeah, and and I almost wonder like if some of the reviews would have been rewritten. Uh, like the following week. Oh, absolutely. Because the narrative with that album is really strong. Uh, You know, you've got the heartbreak of Sufjan's personal life. You know, he was posting about how he dedicated this album to uh, his partner who recently died. Very sad story, very touching. Of course, Sufjan has has had his own health issues lately. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you feel like people are pulling for Sufjan. Uh, This is an album that people seem to really like. Uh, so I think you're right. The 87 doesn't seem totally reflective of the response to this record, but unfortunately this is the only metric we have. We're not doing year end lists. We're doing Metacritic scores. You got an 87, still a strong score. You got Jamela Woods and Lorraine coming out this week. I checked Metacritic this morning. There currently isn't a score for either album, so we don't know how they're doing. I would imagine that they'll both do mid eighties at least. Yeah. I'm feeling like it's, it's like one of those things where you're just like watching your scores the whole time. It's like, fuck man. If they get like, I really hope this player gets a garbage time touchdown, you know, <laughs> uh, like right. we are really belaboring this metaphor, but you know, like I listened to, the, I've heard the Lorraine album in full. It's re, it's really good. I don't know if it's like a massive leap over uh, fatigue, um, which I was kind of banking on. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm feeling positive, but I'm, I'm feeling like mid eighties and I'm just more, uh, concerned because I, I think Arm and Hammer, like they really overperformed. Armin. Okay. So we'll look at my team right now. I'm at 346 total. Uh, I've had four of my albums come <laughs> I can't out. can't remember who my fifth is, by the way. It's Sampha. Was it him? Sampha. Uh, yeah. Sampha okay. Okay. Uh, so, um, my four that have come out so far are Olivia Rodrigo, 
91, Mitski a 90. Those are my top two picks. Very happy with the performance there. Arm and Hammer, 86. Very strong. By the way, I'm still taking grief from people in the emails because I uh, didn't recognize that uh, Billy Woods is an Arm and Hammer, like when I was talking about uh, that draft. Uh, I got an email this week. I got a do your research email huh. this week. Do your research with the exclamation point there. <laughs> So, very unpopular. I, look, I acknowledge I screwed that up. I should have known that going in. I don't know why I didn't know that. That well, was a total uh, brain frog moment. But, you know, you get on the mic, you don't remember everything always. <laughs> it, it's just the way it is. But it's my mistake. I own it. Uh, you know, just know that I recognize it before you send me another do your research email. But um, I, I think that helped you out because I, my when we did that episode, I'm like, nah, people really like they they put all they put all their chips in on like uh maps, so they're not going to like be super hyped about yet another Arm and Hammer album. And like lo and behold, here we are. So, yeah, I think this was- is like the kind of ignorance that like worked in your favor. <laughs> there you go. And then Slow Pulp, uh it was my number 4, came in at 79. I'll, I'll take that as for a number four pick. 79, very strong. It's possible that a late review will still roll in on that, maybe bump me up to 80. Uh, just I'm going to do some prognostication for your team. So you've got the 87 for uh, Sufjan. Let's say Jamela Woods and Lorraine both get 85s, yeah, which I think a, is very realistic. Yeah. So that would be 85 plus 85 is 170 plus 87. That's 257. That would put you only about 90 or so behind me with mm-hmm. like uh Sampa with with Taylor Swift oh, and Sampa. Oh yeah, oh right. So Sam- so yeah. I think this is a ball game. I think I think this is going to because you've got uh the one I have left is Marnie Stern. And realistically I'm thinking like 80 to 82 with her. I think low 80s is is realistic, maybe high 70s. Um so and you've got that Taylor Swift, like, you know, banger yeah, yeah, still that... in the gun here. I think that's going to be a big one. That's going to be your 90 plus. Yeah, Tua versus Bears. That's what we're looking at, right? Or Tua <laughs> versus the Broncos. That's what we're looking at right here. So I wouldn't, I, I think you're actually doing pretty well. I, I, I think this is going to be a shootout to the end here. Uh, and the Taylor Swift, uh, that's going to make the difference, I think. If, if critics are still totally in the tank, for Taylor Swift, and they're they're like, we just want to write another glowing review of 1989, and I think a lot of people will. Yeah, or maybe the first, uh, you know. Yeah, we'll see. That's true. Well, I, I mean, I think eighty. Well, for Pitchfork, yeah. they didn't review it famously the <laughs> yes. first time. That was that was such a big deal because no one else was writing about that album in 2014. Zero. So Nobody. it was really bad <laughs> that Pitchfork didn't review it. Um, so I don't know. Um, We'll see what happens. I think it's going to be a close one, though. This is going to be an exciting, down-to-the-wire uh, battle between the two of us. I can I, I concur. Did we ever figure out what happens to, like, what the person who wins gets? Yeah, I don't know if we bet anything. <laughs> no, we did not. Um, yeah, we didn't think that far ahead. Well, you know, I don't know. Breaking rights, I guess, is the, the, is the win. Yeah, that and, that and two bucks will get you a cup of coffee. Maybe we just do an well, episode where, like... You know, we got to find like your like. I either got to like listen to a bunch of fish bootlegs, or you got to listen to a bunch of screamo, or whatever. I don't know. Maybe the maybe our mailbag will help us out. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe listeners will uh, suggest. Yeah, yeah, listeners, let us know like what should the winner get 
from our fantasy matchup here. We'll probably do another fantasy matchup. I'm, I'm thinking because <laughs> I like this format. I don't know yeah. how you feel. We can we can. We can I discuss. love it. Okay, okay, we both love it. I think going into like early 2024 when there's nothing to talk about, <laughs> yeah. we'll figure out some other fantasy draft thing. That'll be a good way to fill up space in this podcast during the dead zone yeah. of January and February. Add some laughs, killed some time. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, let's get to our mailbag. Yeah, and it's about which. time because we uh, we've been piling up letters, uh, and we, we've just like gone late in a lot of our episodes lately. So like we have like a mailbag planned, and then we run out of time. It's like the Jimmy Kimmel Matt Damon thing, like where he always gets bumped. Supposedly, like it's like the running joke on that show. <laughs> Here, uh, it's not a joke; it's for real. So. It's great to get to our mailbag. We've got a bunch of letters here. If you want to hit us up, it's always great to hear from our listeners. Even if they're telling me to do more research, hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Again, IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. We eagerly await to hear from you. Uh, Do you want to read our first letter, I do. I do. So, uh, yeah, this comes to us from Aru in D.C. So, uh, he lives in, or they live in D.C., uh, so hi, Stephen and Ian. I live in DC and recently bought tickets for a Ty. Okay, is it Ty Siegel or Ty Seagal? See, this is another one. Okay, I think it's Ty Seagal. All right. So, yeah, uh, let's let's go with that. I live in DC and recently bought <laughs> tickets for a Ty Seagal concert at the new 9:30 Club affiliated venue, The Atlantis. It's a small nightclub, and I was psyched to be able to see him in that environment. Tickets sold out fairly quickly. A few weeks later, I received an email from Ticketmaster saying they're moving the concert to a larger space, Lincoln Theater, and normally I'd be happy that an artist was securing their bag, but this is now a seated venue. I reluctantly requested a refund, as that's not the vibe for me. My elder millennial knees haven't given out yet. What are your thoughts on seating for acts that require a floor? Who would you suck it up to go see regardless? I love this question. I do too, and I like the idea that uh, our listener thought that we would actually not go to a show because it was seated. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, there was some sort of temporary amnesia about us being two 40-year-old-plus people <laughs> who love seated shows and, if anything, would not go to a show because it wasn't seated. Although, I, you know, I don't think I've ever made a decision no. <laughs> based on seating whether to go. And I've certainly never bought a ticket and then backed out. Based on the seating situation. Have you ever done that? No, I love how, like, you know, I love how niche principled this is. I mean, like, I know it's, like, an obvious and unavoidable pun. Like, you know, this is a thing that he's taken a stand for. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I have never even considered this. I always love when our mailbag uh, our, when our mailbag questions are about, like, things that, that are this specific. I love it. Like, I love I'm, it. I'm just not – I'm not – I, I'm not going to go to this show, and I'm really excited about because I have to sit down. Right. Well, and the thing about this show, too, is that I'm sure, even though that there are seats, that almost everyone is going to be standing anyway. Right. You know, they're just going to be standing at their seat. But I, I doubt people are going to be sitting during the Ty Seagal show or Ty Siegel show. Um, but, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, from just anecdotal evidence i don't think that this is totally unique i have talked to people who have said well i hate that venue because there's seats Hmm. and there's always shows at that venue and i hate it because i don't like seats i think that the anti-seat people that's like a real thing oh surely and i have to say like for me you know 
I like having a seat, but it's not just about the sitting down thing. I mean, again, more often than not, when I have a seat, I end up standing. You know, when I saw you 2 at the Sphere, to name a recent example, I had a seat, but I was standing the entire show because I wanted to stand and also everyone around me was standing. If everyone had been sitting down, I would have been sitting down because you don't want to be like the one person right. standing. <laughs> uh, but I stood the entire show. The thing about a seat, though, is that it's guaranteed real estate in the venue. You know that you have this space, and someone else is not going to take it if, say, you have to go to the bathroom or you decide to go get a beer. You know, that to me is the stressful part of like the standing room only situation. And maybe this is more of like a Minnesota thing, but like when <laughs> I go to like shows here in Minnesota, it's a very kind of passive-aggressive situation like where people are like tree trunks and they don't want to move if you have to get out of your spot to go to the bathroom. So you have to fight your way out and then you have to like fight your way back and hope that your spot is still there. And even if you're like with a group of people and they're guarding the spot, it can be very difficult. And I just feel like I like the uh, just the... Uh, the state of mind, the security of knowing that if I go leave and I have a seat, it's going to be there, you know, and it's just, it's just a, like a stress reliever for me. So that to me is like the, the joy of the seat, not just sitting down, but the real estate, the guaranteed real estate at a show. I, the times like these, I really wish we did a live call-in show because, like, we'd be like, "Hey, Minnesota <laughs> listeners out there, what, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about this tree trunking here?" Um, yeah, I mean, the the shows I mentioned, I'm pretty sure they're all seated, and I'm like super stoked for that. Um, you know, the I think with like Ty Siegel, like, yeah, people are going to be standing, but also, huh, okay, so w- with a show like this, I'm thinking of like rock bands that have been around for like 10 or 15 years i think you kind of forfeit the the need to have a pit i mean like i think this is even true when i've seen like touche amore or even like their thursday reunion shows it's like you get a lot of people who are like you know 30 40 or better and feel like well you know it's a it's a rock band it's a hardcore band we still got to do a pit like no no we don't and i mean i think with ty siegel (laughs) Uh, like, I don't doubt that he has, you know, generated a younger audience, not just, like, people who love, like, uh, Goodbye Bread or whatever. But um, I was talking to this guy, uh, who this 30-something dude who's seen the Brian Jonestown Massacre this weekend. He's like, yeah, I got to see him because, like, I don't know when Anton Newcomb's going to die. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I think he's going to be the guy who's, like, around till he's 80 or 90 making stupid posts. But um, Yeah, he, I mean, I feel like he's <laughs> outlived his I'm gonna die period yeah like he's that was like 20 years ago he's still going strong yeah I would he's never gonna die (laughs) right he's gonna be in his 90s yeah and still doing Brian Jones sound massacre shows (laughs) yeah but I think that like he's like this guy said to me he and he's a psych rock fan he's like yeah psych rocks for teenagers and so like there's gonna be a new generation of people who are there for like Ty Siegel but like at the same time, I don't think I don't think of Ty Siegel as like a pit show. I think of that as like, oh, he's doing an eight minute guitar solo. Like maybe now I use the bathroom. But I, I, you know, I, I, what I, what I need though is some clarity because you know we're talking about like seated shows, you know, like floor shows, and then we're talking about like seated shows. 
And then you mentioned the U2 Sphere experience. And I'm thinking of the time where I saw the 1975 at like an outdoor amphitheater where it's seated. And you get a seat, but then you get the people standing up in front of you, and which means no one can enjoy their seat. Um, I could, You could argue that's like the best of both worlds. But for us, it's like the worst of both worlds because like we want to sit. But like we're not allowed to like we have the opportunity to sit. But now we got to like sit, sit behind like people who are not going to sit down for the entire show. Yeah, we know where we're going to be when we come back from the bathroom. But um, yeah, I, I I think I'm in like my full blown seated era. Yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking about the time I saw Crosby, Stills and Nash like years ago and. The there pit in that big... show was just fucking like, let's open up this fucking pit, you know. To well, Judy the thing Blue about Eyes. that show <laughs> is that most people want to sit because they're all like geriatric baby boomers, and then and then there's people like me, uh, a geriatric Gen Xer. <laughs> but um, there was like, there's occasionally like one old hippie that wants to stand and kind of you know groove out to Woodstock and carry on and all that stuff, and there was an old hippie standing in front of me. And there was an old hippie behind me that was just super pissed <laughs> at this standing hippie. And they were exchanging words. I thought there was going to be like a cane fight to the death, you know, like cane jousting between these two old hippies. I mean, my my philosophy is if you want to stand, you should be able to stand, you know. And it might be annoying to me because I want to sit, but I'm not going to get too upset about that. But uh, that is an interesting wrinkle in the whole kind of sit-stand seating versus standing room only thing because even if you do have a seat sometimes you have to you have to stand anyway you have to kind of go with the crowd in those situations but again i love the real estate i get stressed out about having to get out of my spot and back to the spot i just think i don't want to deal with that so yeah again i'm pro real estate pro real estate the band pro real estate it shows (laughs) um Let's get to our next letter. This is a controversial letter. This is a letter that we have bounced, I think, three times. Yeah. Not, you know, just because we ran out of time. We've referenced this letter in a previous episode, uh, but I think it's time for us now to get down into it here. Uh, It's from Mitch in Winnipeg, and he writes, Hi, Stephen Ian. Huge fan of the pod. It is the 20th anniversary of the Weaker Than's classic album Reconstruction Site. Now... I think we're about a month past that, yeah. right? Because yeah. we bumped this letter a bunch. But, you know, it was, it, it was recently. Yeah. Uh, and I am overcome by waves of nostalgia as a native Winnipegger. Is that how they say it? I mean, I, I'm going to trust Mitch on that. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. That's not us. That's him saying it. Do you think that's his real name, by the way, Mitch? I feel like all yes. of our letter writers are named Mitch. <laughs> it might just be like a running joke with our listeners. Yeah, Mitch doesn't um, sound like a very Canadian name, though. Like, I, I would believe it if it was like Mitch from like uh, suburban Philadelphia, because I actually know a couple guys named Mitch from suburban Philadelphia. But Mitch seems a little American. I, I, I'm going to assume that Mitch is being real with us here. But I definitely believe he's from Winnipeg. So, as a native Winnipegger, I always viewed the Weaker Thens as a modestly successful local band. But after reading some tributes to them this week, I am realizing that they had a wider impact on the indie music world than I understood at the time. I am interested in knowing your opinions of the Weaker Thens and whether you can contextualize their legacy. In simple terms, Weaker Thens, yay or nay, XOXO, Mitch from Winnipeg. Yay or nay, Weaker Thens, Ian? So... 
this is one of the bands that we talk about here where we feel kind of obligated to like them. I mean, with the weaker thens, they have set up this format uh, for people who played in a punk or emo band and they want to kind of shift towards something else. I mean, you know, we, I think the OG of this is, uh, you know, uh, jets to Brazil after jawbreaker and to a, a different degree dashboard confessional, but the weaker thens, um, I know people who are like obsessed with them. Uh, you know, John K. Sampson has like a very distinct, uh, form of writing that, I could understand why people might get like tattoos of their lyrics. And this is sort of a band I have to like lump into a hold steady sort of mountain goats sort of thing where I would probably prefer to read a book written by John K. Sampson than uh, listen to their music, which is really strange given how much people in like the emo sphere love this band. And I was like 23 when Reconstruction Site dropped. You would think this would be like the perfect time for me to get into this band because like I was also kind of easing out of emo when like the third wave stuff was popping. But, um, you know, when I hear it now, like I, I try like every single fucking year to like have a, a weaker than moment. And I just, I'm, I'm just thinking of like the people who are like really into Bukowski, like the kind of person who would like bring a Bukowski book to a bar. And like, it gives us like the big words, like type of punk stuff. Like, you know, like when I was 16 and listening to like Bad Religion, how I thought they were geniuses. <laughs> but you get the wimpiness and cloying nature of indie folk. So it's kind of like a worst of all worlds sort of situation. Look, I I vaguely recall uh, thinking Plea from a Cat Named Virtue was an incredible song when like my girlfriend put it on a mix CD in 2004. But now I'd probably think it's insufferable. So um, look, I don't think it's going to happen for me. And the weaker than I don't begrudge anyone who loves them, but like it wasn't, uh, I just, it's so not my thing right now. Yeah. I mean, this is a band, you know, to get to the uh, question here about contextualizing uh, their place in the indie rock world, you know, they have a uh, sphere of influence that is narrow, but deep. Yes. You know, meaning that like not that many people love this band, but the people who do go, hardcore you know like you said like they're getting the tattoos on themselves you know they are quoting lyrics they uh, you know almost regard this band with like a, a religious type fervor and the the devotion of people who love this band like you it it, it periodically makes me curious and like makes me think okay i i know i don't really like this band but i forgot why i don't like them so why don't i put on this record <laughs> And remind myself why I don't like it. And I did that with Reconstruction Site. And within 10 seconds, I was like, okay, I know why I don't like this. And it comes down to the vocals. John K. Sampson's vocals. You know, I, I can respect what he's doing as a writer uh, in the storytelling aspect of what he does. But uh, the sound of his voice, it fills me with... And I'm sorry to say this, but I'm just being honest. It fills me like with a certain kind of revulsion that I can only liken to when I see an adult man do like an Austin Powers impression. You know, like where you're just like, oh, this is so like weak to me. Like I just can't stomach it. It's just, I don't know. There's, there's almost something kind of pathetic about the sound of the voice. 
And that might be too harsh, but like, honestly, that's how I feel. And like, I was thinking about this because I don't want to get into this conversation of like, well, some of the best bands ever have singers who can't sing. And like, I totally agree with that. And I was trying to like break it down a little bit about like, what is it about some singers who can't sing that I like and other singers who can't sing that I don't like. And really looking at this talk singing type style of singing and like how I have varying reactions to different kinds of people who do that kind of vocal style. And I realized that there's really like two kinds of talk singers in uh, the rock world. The first is what I'll call like the Willie Nelson style singers where they're talk singing during the verses. And then in the chorus, they end up kind of adopting this like kind of crooner type (laughs) style of singing. And I think, you know, you could say that uh, the most obvious example in the indie world is Bill Callahan. Like Bill Callahan has that kind of style. And Bill Callahan has had a very obvious evolution in his vocal style starting with smog and then into his solo stuff to the point where now I think he's a great singer. You know, I love the sound of his voice, but I could see someone not liking it. If you don't like that kind of croonery type singing combined with the talk singing, I think David Berman to a degree has that kind of style as well. And I love his vocals. Uh, Leonard Cohen to go back to like an older person in the style. He obviously also has that kind of style. It's singing like in a lower register, you're talking, very poetic, and then in the chorus you're kind of, again, crooner style vocals there, you're, you're extending your voice a little bit. I'm a sucker for that. I love that kind of singing. The kind of talk singing I don't like, I'll call it the John Darnell style of singing, <laughs> where it sounds like you're trying to sing, and it sounds like you're singing off like the top of your head. <laughs> And it's almost like you're screaming, but talking at the same time. And it's like this sort of bleeding type quality to the voice. And that's the kind of thing I cannot stand. It's, it'd be like if I were trying to sing mm-hmm. like a metal singer, you know, and I was like <laughs> kind of trying to sing like an upper register, but I don't have like the body behind it. I'm just singing it like from the neck up, basically. That's like the worst vocal style to me ever. And like John Darnielle is another person where I respect him as a writer. I, I, I appreciate the ambition of his songwriting, but the vocals just kill it for me every time. It just takes me out of the song. And I'm just like, and again, I'm seeing Bob Dylan. A lot of people think Bob <laughs> Dylan is a terrible singer, yeah. but like to me, I don't know. It's, it's different with him. I think Bob Dylan's a great singer personally, and I'm sure people think John Darnielle's a great singer, but I don't know. It's almost like this thing where you want to be a great punk rock singer or you want to be a great emo singer, but you don't actually have the voice to back it up, but like you're singing like you do. And I just think that's such a terrible style. Like, I just can't get behind it at all. Well, it's interesting because like uh, the weaker thans are a model almost to the letter for Slaughter Beach Dog. Uh, in terms of like where one starts and where one ends up. And I think they're kind of similar in style. So I'm curious about like why that band works for you. And because uh, like that seems like the, one of the more obvious uh, descendants of him. Yeah, I mean, for me, like Jake Ewald's voice and Slaughter Beach Dog, I don't think it's really comparable to John K. Sampson. I could see like the storytelling aspect of what Slaughter Beach Dog is doing, being inspired by the weaker thens. But I think... If anything, Jake Ewald has drifted more into the like talk singing with the crooner type 
chorus type talk singing than like the thing I'm talking about, which, you know, again, it, you know, I, when I think about the weaker thans and I think about the mountain goats, there's like an earnestness to those bands mm-hmm. and the vocals reflect that. Like it just sounds like the singers are trying so hard <laughs> when they're singing and it just turns me off. I just can't connect with it. And it just takes me out of those songs. And I'm sure that they're wonderful songs with a lot to offer, but the vocals just kill it for me. Yeah, I think for you, it's like the type of voice. But for me, it's like the type of guy, you know? Like, I, I can't help but, like, get out of, like, the type of guy who uh, I think of when it comes to, like, Weaker Thans or Jets of Brazil. Like, there is definitely an earnestness that's, like in a weird way, almost as cringe as like being like a, a teenage emo person. It's like, you're just kind of exchanging one cringe for another, you know? Well, you don't like the other kind of talk singing, correct? Like the Bill li- Callahan well, type. I like Bill Callahan, you know, in, in bits and I like, you know, Willie Nelson. I think there's a command to it. Um, that I don't quite get, uh, from like John K. Sampson or like John Darnell. Like I think of like, um, you know, Bill Callahan or like Willie Nelson's being like less literary. And I think the literary component of it um, is kind of what rubs me the wrong way about some of the other bands that we're talking about um, where it's like, dude, you're trying to write, like just save it for the book where I don't feel the same way about that as like Bill Callahan, who like tends to have like a more mysterious sort of omniscient, uh, uh, omniscient character going. He almost sounds like godlike in a way. Not like he sounds like God, but it's like this kind of removed observer in a way that I can get down with more so. Like I think that John K like and John Darnell, the Johns, like they imprint themselves on the song in a way that uh really makes it inaccessible to me. And also I just think about being like berated by people who <laughs> I don't get berated by Bill Callahan fans as much as I do um you know, people like Weaker Thans or Jess Brazil. Well, you know, and I, I wrote this in my notes, like lean in versus lean back right. type vocal styles, like where the lean in vocal style, which I would equate with like a Bill Callahan, where he's singing and like you want to lean forward and hear like what he's talking about, you know, because of the try hard element. Like it doesn't seem like he's trying as hard like to put the yeah. song across as you know, like a weaker than or mountain goats type situation, which is very much like a lean back thing. Like this person's in your face, like shouting these lyrics <laughs> at you. Uh, and it's very difficult to take. Now, of course there are exceptions to my own rule here. Like I am a hold steady fan. I like Craig Finn's voice. I, I appreciate what he does. You could group him in with like the John Darnielle and the weaker than type of vocalizing and music making. I mean, they clearly kind of fit in with that group. And then on the other side, like, I love Destroyer. And, like, Dan Behar, you could say, has that kind of singing from the neck up type vocal style. But I love his vocals, and I love what he's doing. So I don't know. It's not consistent. I mean, really, it is like a case-by-case basis thing. It either hits you or it doesn't. Um, I know we have a lot of listeners that love the weaker then, so, like, no disrespect intended, even though I threw out some disrespectful words earlier just being honest but you know it's just my opinion who cares about my opinion doesn't matter um yeah the weaker thens make me kind of want to die but no shade you know (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's just me i don't want you to die i just want myself to die not you um you want to read our next letter yeah this comes us from jordan from detroit i get like classic 
you know, uh, cla- classic classic indie cast uh, writer. Um, so, hi, Stephen Ian. I'm an okay guitar player who is about to buy a bass. Good fucking move. That's the way you're going to get in a band. As I prepare to jump in, I found myself listening more closely to the bass lines of music I've listened to. I've always appreciated bass, but I'll be honest, sometimes I glaze over the bass in favor of the sick riffs of a guitar or the loud fills of a drum kit. Who are your favorite indie rock bassists? Yeah, I could study Fleet or McCartney, uh, but I'd rather remember some guys and dive into some indie bass grooves. So, uh, great question. Yeah, it's like, I mean, what is the bassist except like the guy who played guitar and really wanted to be in a band? So it's just like, whatever, just buy a $200 bass, you'll figure shit out, play root notes. No, man, like, I'm glad that we're giving some respect to the indie rock bassist out there. Yeah. I feel like we probably have some indie rock bassists listening to the show. Hopefully your ears are perking up right now. We're going to get into some real discourse about indie rock bassists. I mean, the first person that came to mind, if we're talking about bass players from like the last 25 years, Carlos D. Carlos Interpol. D. Fuck yeah. I mean, tur- turn on the bright lights. If you're, <laughs> if you're looking for like a bass playing clinic, just listen to that record, man. It's so majestic, the bass lines. I really think that that is a record where you're not going to be distracted by the guitars. You're going to just center in on the bass. It's such a pivotal part of that sound. Uh, so yeah, Carlos D and also just like Carlos D's vibe, <laughs> you know, if you're a bass player and you want to stand out, you know, cause it's a lot of times about the singer or the guitar player, but if you want to stand out, study Carlos D's vibe, man, like you, you, you like have like the angular haircut and like the all black suit. And didn't you like have like a gun on stage or was yeah that just like photos? yeah he's um you know he, he's kind of walked back from the uh kind of uh fascist leaning iconography he preferred i mean it was 2002 who didn't get involved in that but yeah i think carlos it was like a soft it yeah. was a soft fascist yeah it was like a it was like a himbo fascist you absolutely know? it was like a, yes. a non-political <laughs> you know uh, just like a slutty fascist type thing, type look. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the, the coolest new Halloween outfit, slutty fascist. Uh, yeah, it's great. Um, another basis that came to mind for me, like from, you know, this is like somewhat older, I guess, but you know, like 90s indie rock is Eric Judy of Modest Mouse. I oh, think. yeah. But like Lonesome Crowded West, if you listen to that record, just great bass playing. That's a record, too, where it's only three instruments. So the bass stands out more automatically. But just the way that he locked in with Jeremiah Green, R.I.P., uh, who, if you're an indie rock drummer, that's where you start studying first, Jeremiah Green. Just an incredible drummer. But then what he did with Eric Judy as the rhythm section of Modest Mouse, um, I think is incredible. Uh, Got to shout out Thundercat. You know, in terms of like a celebrity bass player, like someone who just stands out as a bass player. You know, he is like, the flea yes. <laughs> of the indie rock world, you know, <laughs> like Thunder, Thundercat, not just indie rock, but, you know, obviously hip hop, R&B. I mean, he's spanning many different uh, places. I also want to shout out Dave Hartley of the War on Drugs, because I think he's got like a cool, like Adam Clayton type bass playing where it's subtle, but it just sounds like a mile thick. It's very atmospheric, very vibey, perfect for that band. Great example of a bass player who's serving the song. But if you listen to his bass lines, they're sneaky great. And finally, I want to say Chris Bayo of Vampire Weekend, who I think is a great bass player. But like, if you see Vampire Weekend live, he's dancing around. 
He's making him his presence felt. He has a lot of showmanship on stage. And it just is another uh, reminder that just because you're playing bass doesn't mean you have to just melt into the background. You can be jumping around. You can be rolling up your sleeves. You can make the audience look at you if you're the bass player. So, yeah, those are the five people I think I would shout out. Yeah, I think with Carlos D, it kind of brings up this unfortunate kind of uh, body shaming thing where I feel like if you're like tall bassist just makes sense to me. You know, it's, oh, it's like, amazing. Unless you're like flea and then that's like you're hunched over the bass and that's all part of your thing. You just it just looks so fucking so much cooler. But I love how Carlos D, like when I did the oral history of Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I actually got to talk to Carlos D and like that was really awesome. Like I didn't think I'd get him on there, but Paul Banks said that Carlos like kind of jokingly, but not jokingly said that we should call the album celebrated baselines of the future. Uh, and which is a total Carlos D line. But, um, if we're talking about like, um, you know, late nineties or like indie rock for sure, if you're going to bring up modest mouse, which I think you absolutely should, I'm thinking of Eric Axelson from the dismemberment plan. Like, Holy shit. Those, by the way, I I, I had to look up. I, I couldn't remember the guy's name. I got him confused with the drummer. Who's also insane. I didn't realize that Dismemberment Plan pl- opened up for a European leg of Pearl Jam's binaural tour. Did you know oh, this? Oh, yeah. Oh. That would make sense because they were doing, you know, like Sonic Youth also opened up for okay. part of that tour. And uh, yeah, they, I mean, you know, Pearl Jam, they were really good about bringing like indie rock bands. Like Slater Kinney was opening up for them a bunch in that era. You know, so they were they were raising up the indie rock bands into the arenas all over the world. Yeah, shout out to them. But, um, yeah, otherwise, I mean, like, those those uh, Emergency and I and Change, like, just insane bass lines. Also, I'm thinking about, like, and I swear this happened. I can't seem to find it, but I remember somebody uh, around the time uh, Moonshape Pool dropped, they complimented Colin Greenwood by saying his bass lines were woke. I don't, <laughs> like, I, it's too, I mean, it was 2016, so, like, I know what they're trying to say, but, um, yeah, good bass lines there, but I I don't know if we can call this indie anymore, but like someone who like when I think of like really cool bass lines in like a indie-ish kind of setting, Kevin Parker from Tame Impala, his bass lines are so fucking good. Like oh, yeah. it might actually be his greatest strength as a uh, musician, like more so than the riffs. I mean, there's like, you know, Elephant's a good riff, but the moment or like the way he, um, you know, bumps up the baseline. I think that's part of working with Dave Fridman, who's, you know, notorious for just like boosting the low end insanely. But I'm also, yeah, thinking- and, and his drum sounds too, like are great, yeah. especially like the early Tame Impala records. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Lonerism. I mean, that's where like all the Dunian comparisons come in because <laughs> Dunian has just sick drum sounds, but you know, Kevin Parker really had, that on the early Tame Impala records. Yeah, and also you could bring up like, of course, like Peter Hook. That's like a the thing is you can't do a Peter Hook style baseline without like people like thinking, oh yeah, you're totally doing a, a Peter oh, yeah. Hook I thing. Mean, like you can't, you just can't. Like every, it's like playing guitar like the Edge. You know, it, 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 like they invented it, and you're just paying homage each time. But um, I'm thinking yeah, that's old school. I mean, yeah. But uh, otherwise, I would say that um. You know, if you're a bassist, the one thing you need to do, learn the riff from Space Hogs in the meantime. Like, just, that's the first thing you should do and call it a day. <laughs> like, you should not not know how to play that. Or, you know, who plays bass on House of Jealous Lovers? You know, like, oh, yeah, that. Another, <laughs> you know, just incredible bass part. 
But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I if we're going like classic rock era, I mean, we could t- talk way more. Ba- I could talk bass players for a long time, actually. But I mean, I think this is a good mm-hmm. recap of like the last like twenty five years or so of bass players. Uh, we got one more letter here left in the mailbag. I'll read this one. This one uh, it comes from Stephen in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. I love it, Stephen <laughs> with a PH. I'm kind of a sworn enemy of all Stephen with PHs. You know, I'm I'm in the V tribe, but uh, I'll, I'll make an exception for you, Stephen. Um, hi, Stephen Ian. Love the pod. I was scouring some records one day and caught a glimpse of Beirut's not for long previous release, Galapi. Gallipoli. Is that how you say it? I have Gallipoli? no fucking. I have no fucking clue. But Gallipoli. I'm I'm gonna go with Gallipoli. Gallipoli. Yeah, sure. I know there's that film Gallip, which I can't say. That film is from 1973 with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. That's a great movie. Um, I first started exploring my taste in music in the early 2010s, and I can recall around that time that Beirut was being praised by indie music publications and included in Urban Outfitters free mixes. Wow, remember some free mixes there. Uh, Since then, their profile has been pretty low, and with the upcoming release of another work, that's an album called, I looked this up, What's it called? It's called <laughs> Hatzel. Hatzel. It's out November 10th. That's the new Beirut record. Um, with a new album coming out soon, I thought it'd be a good time to ask, yay or nay, on the folky, corny, once indie darling Beirut. Thanks, y'all. That's Stephen in Mount Pleasant. So Beirut, not the not the city, but the band. How do we feel about Beirut? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I included Beirut in uh, my big blog rock list, which ran, ran like a month or so ago. And, you know, it was funny to consider this project because it begged the question of whether like white on white appropriation could be a thing. I mean, like we think about <laughs> him coming up in 2006 where he was this 19 or this teenager from New Mexico that sounded like a Romanian dude from the 1930s. And it's like, this feels like, I don't know, like wrong in some like way, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe they were like faking experience or what have you, but, um, or just like, it sounds like neutral milk hotel. And it's like, I mean, we, we could talk about like the ways that's been like reconsidered. It's like problematic in many, many ways, but you know, Beirut was like a thing that I, you know, I was aware of and similar to weaker than, you know, you get like postcards from Italy on a mi- like every single mix from 2006 alongside like the blows, um, you know, true affection. But yeah, I, I think about like Beirut, not in Wes Anderson, in kind of like a Wes Anderson type figure in that it's the only, it's the sort of thing that could really only define indie culture at large in the mid 2000s. And I think you could throw the Decemberists in there as well. Um, but my take on Beirut in general is that they have one good song and every song is that one song. Uh, but I can't remember how any of those songs go because they, I always end up thinking of the end of Oh Comely by neutral milk hotel instead. But um, yeah, I'm going to go with yay, I guess like, cause like with our, our original uh, mailbag question, Aru from DC, I love when people like stake out a principle and they just stick with it the entire time. And you can't say that Beirut has you know strayed from what they what from what their original intention is. Like they picked the sound, they're going, they're sticking with it. I mean, they've changed a little bit and over time, but it's not like 
you know, when you think of Iron and Wine or Decemberist, uh, who would I situate similarly? They've evolved more, but like they've done so in a way that makes them a little less interesting to me. And so uh, I want to get like shout shout to Zach Condon for sticking to his strengths. You know, specialists are really underrated. So I'm going to give them a yay. Would I li- am I going to listen to the new album? Probably. Am I going to listen to it twice? I don't know. But generally speaking, yay. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting phenomenon with this band because, you know, and I don't have any sense of like what their uh, cross-generational appeal is. Like, are there people that are in their early 20s who have any interest in this era of indie rock? Like, are people investigating Beirut, the Decemberists? Uh, who else would you put in that camp? Maybe Ockerville like River. Um, yeah, like would like rural Alberta Advantage, like a band like that. Uh, and, and maybe uh, Andrew Bird. Enough? I would put Andrew. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rural Andrew Alberta Bird Advantage sure. is a little too blocky. They're, but I would say Andrew Bird. Like when I, I remember making like just like a ton of jokes about like the Andrew Bird um, Iron and Wine co-headlining tour that occurred last year. So M Ward, of course, you're going to put in there. Um, you know, the, oh yeah, M Ward. Yeah, so yeah, like, I, like my impression of like that group of like my impression of that group of artists is that the is that they still have a big audience, but it's an audience that has aged with them. Absolutely. So like if you loved Beirut when you were a twenty three year old college student, you're gonna care about this new Beirut record that's coming out next month. Now that you're like a forty year old, you know, music listener, you know, like you maybe haven't really embrace like newer indie bands but the indie bands that you came up with you're still loyal to them you're going to care about Beirut they're still a relevant band to you and I know this is like an imperfect metric we've talked about this in other episodes but like I was looking at Beirut streaming numbers and like they're pretty healthy I mean they've got us you know they've got a song that's at almost 80 million spins they've got a like a, a bunch that are like mid like you know like 50 or like around like maybe like 40 or so um my assumption is that the decemberists were bigger than beirut but again going by by the monthly listeners on spotify like beirut is almost like twice as many as the decemberists which i would not have thought no because i feel like in the aughts the decemberists would have been bigger than beirut they would have been the beatles and beirut (laughs) would have been the stones (laughs) (laughs) decemberists are our oasis and Beirut is blur uh, of that sort of folky, uh, you know, affected type indie rock back then. Yeah, we need um, we need another hour to extend this metaphor. Like yeah, I, you know, like where where's Andrew Bird? Like where does tallest man on earth come to play? Um, where do the fruit oh, tallest bats? man on earth? I yeah, think I that's mean, I, think, I think that's more late aught. They're along with like Fleet Foxes, I think. Well, Fleet Foxes, you got to separate from absolutely group because, yeah. like, you know, and like Bonnie Vare and like yeah. they're they're like in a different league. These are like the the B team of that <laughs> like indie folk boom yeah. of the two thousands. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting now that we're getting about twenty years removed from this of of this time. Like, what is going to be revived and what is not? Like, are there young musicians who are listening to these records and feeling inspired by them? Or are they listening to the records that these people listen to that are from like the 70s and 60s and skipping over the blog rock people of the 2000s? Like, that's what I'm curious about. Uh, Because if I had to guess again, I feel like all those Spotify spins, they're coming from people that had, like you said, like postcards from Italy on a mixed CD that like 
they gave to their girlfriend <laughs> in 2007, and they still feel connected to Beirut after all this time. Yeah, I, I, I do, th- like, I when I think of, like, postcards from Italy, I could hear that on a TikTok. Like, I really, really can. And also, like, what would be more, like, for lack of a better term, like, punk or countercultural to be, like, a high school kid in the age of, like, you know, TikTok and Swiftyism and whatever, to, like, just be super into Beirut and, like, all the stuff from that era, it's, like, that is, some, that is like, some weirdo shit right there. And there probably is. Like, at, we see it so often where there's just, like, this really one – there's this, like – I mean, maybe maybe we just haven't discovered the duster of the, uh, you know, po- pre-blog rock folk uh, NPR era. I don't know. Maybe yeah. that may, maybe that's Beirut, but uh, – They'd be too bats. big, though. Yeah, that's true. There's got to be like a like an also ran type band. <laughs> we are gonna that, find it. I, I'm at- yeah. That guy like a five point eight from Pitchfork, and now kids are like, this is like the best indie rock of the two thousands. You know, I, I and I wonder what that band would be. I don't because we're not gonna know. Yeah, maybe it's, it's Coco a- Rosie or something. <laughs> Coco Rosie. <laughs> Yay Coco, or nay? The, the Coco Rosie Assads is upon us. Can't wait. now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Alright, so it's been a minute since we did an IndieCast Hall of Fame episode, so I can't remember whether I put Abe Vigoda's crush in there. Even if I haven't, it's been more or less implied because I think, like, I-, I-, I do want to see the Spotify numbers or the Apple Music numbers of, like, how much of Abe Vigoda how much how many people have listened to a Vigoda's crush and like what percentage of that is just strictly me so i've been caping for this project they emerged from the smell you know in the late aughts you know alongside no age and may she and so forth and crush was just an incredible record came out in 2010 produced by chris cody who did all the beach house records um and just had this it sounded like uh, you know the psychedelic furs are echoing the bunny men, but if you ha- it just played it at double speed. So they just haven't done anything since until now. So now they have a new project, the two main figures called Cupid and Psyche. That's named, of course, after a Scritti Politti record. I said, of course, as if you know we have a huge Scritti Politti <laughs> heads. <laughs> All the Scritti Politti hey. people were like, he better make that reference. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying though, because people, a lot of people bring up that band. You know, it, they're like kind of like alongside like the Blue Nile, where you, you have it's like where you have to like bring up like like oh yeah, that's like what a lot of people are going for. That's the fist of pop sound. Nevertheless, they have a new record out called uh, Romantic Music, and it sounds like uh, the last Ava Goda record, which is. You know, it's a little less rock, a little more smooth. It does sound like it's two people rather than the band, so you don't get the same sort of like hyperkinetic drumming. But look, when I bring up a Vagoda, that is a bat signal. If you're like one of the 12 people who have followed me along this journey, you're going to like this record. I like this record a lot. Um, It touches on a sound that a lot of people like try to do, but they just, do like oh it sounds like pretty in pink or it sounds like stranger things they take a little more artful and considered and shadowy uh view on it so i can't, can't highly recommended because you know what it sounds like a, it sounds like a vagoda i can't t- <laughs> i can't i cannot fucking put it more bluntly <laughs> 
Yes, and not the character actor Abe Bogota. No, this is the band Abe Bogota. Did he? Did the actor know about this band? Like, was there ever any like cross, like pollination uh, going on there? Uh, I, you know, me, I, I haven't kicked it with Abe. I, I imagine someone might have brought it up to him before he, uh, you know, passed on quite recently. Um, but yeah, I'm just gonna assume that he did not like. Uh, you know, throwing shade or dreams of my love chasing after me. You know, all the classic Ava Go to songs. Skeleton, yeah. their 2008 tropical punk uh, classic. Well, shout out to the band Ava Goda and the actor Ava Goda, R.I.P. Uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, I want to talk about a record called Tomorrow's Fire. It's by a Chicago based musician named Ella Williams, who records under the name Squirrel Flower. And uh, this is just like a really, really good rock record. This has actually become one of my favorite rock records uh, that I've heard uh, in the second half of, of 2023. And you could probably guess that I would like this record based on some of the guest musicians that uh, Williams invited uh, to play on the album. Uh, you got Dave Hartley, who I mentioned just a few minutes ago from The War on Drugs. He's laying down some bass on this record. Nice. You have MJ Lenderman. Lending his guitar skills to this record, uh, that definitely adds another layer uh, for me that I'm going to love on this album. But, you know, again, this is just like really good, vibey rock music from a singer-songwriter who's just writing good melodies, writing really smart lyrics. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you want? You want vibes, you want big rock sounds, you want a songwriter who has something to say, he's going to express something in an emotionally immediate way that's going to make you feel something. And even if you don't want to feel something and you just like want some vibey rock songs in your ears that are going to make you feel good, that's what this record is. I like it a lot. It's called Tomorrow's Fire. The artist is Squirrel Flower. Definitely check it out. Yeah, a lot of people uh, I know and trust are uh, big on this one. Yep, it's a good one. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 